Brought to you by the Mary Christie Institute, a thought leadership organization dedicated to the behavioral health and well-being of teens and young adults. We have a particular focus on college students. I'm Marjorie Malpedi, the executive director of the Mary Christie Institute. And I'm Dana Humphrey, the associate director of the Mary Christie Institute, and we're the hosts of the quadcast. I'm Marjorie Malpedi, and this is the second episode in our series on peer support in college mental health based on the paper that we recently released with the Rudiment Family Foundation. Today's guest is Ben Locke. And after we hear from Ben, we will bring in Dr. Zoe Ragusius for comment. Ben Locke is the Chief Clinical Officer of Together All, a web-based community for people to share and support one another about their mental health. Dr. Locke comes from Penn State University, where he was the Senior Director of Counseling and Psychological Services. He also co-founded the Center for Collegiate Mental Health, where he served as the Executive Director since 2005. Welcome, Ben. Hi, Marge. Great to be with you. It's great to have you here. We are excited to be talking to you for so many reasons. You are now part of an interesting new model for peer-to-peer support. I might just ask you first to describe Together All, Ben, and what kind of service that provides particularly for students. Yeah, sure. So together all in brief, you could think of as clinically moderated peer support, digital, anonymous, 24-7 access. So it takes the concept of peer support, you know, people helping people. It scales that concept through the use of technology, and then it applies a kind of 24-7 live clinical monitoring system of real clinicians all over the world who proactively shape a healthy community, but then also safeguard those at risk. And what's really interesting about it for me in making this shift is that all of the clinical staff are licensed and are registered mental health providers. So they bring, even though clinically moderated peer support is not a regulated sort of therapeutic activity, we bring all the ethos of licensed mental health service to digital peer support. So it's a it's a really different system. And the goal is to really take something that we know to be helpful, scale it in a way that is accessible to everybody, but then make it safe in comparison to other scaled social media platforms, safe and supportive. That's it in a nutshell. Then what you just described in many ways sort of comes from your experience, right? In terms of how this kind of practice might be part of the puzzle. I was trained to do individual counseling and psychotherapy, and I love doing that. But as I grew in the field, and then specifically over the time of CCMH, CCMH gathers population-level data of students in treatment. We've exceeded more than a million students in treatment at hundreds and hundreds of counseling centers. And one of the things that we were looking at was developing a metric to be able to compare counseling centers across the country. And we talked with hundreds and hundreds of counseling centers over many years to do that. And it became very clear to me that there was no single answer to the college student mental health puzzle and that the need for support was more of a population public health level concern and traditional treatment systems, while absolutely critical and they need to continue to grow, can't solve a population level problem. And so my stepping over into this new role was about trying to see how we can tackle the sort of mental health needs at a population level that's truly scalable and sustainable that also works hand in hand 
with traditional care systems. So you may have seen, we released the paper recently on peer-to-peer support. Yeah, congratulations. Oh, thanks. It was really great to work on that. And part of what we did in our examination is we polled counseling center directors and asked about their interest in this and learned that they're very interested. You're probably not surprised in some level of peer-to-peer support. My question to you is, first of all, what do you think about that in terms of the appeal of these services? And then I want to talk a little bit about what you think counseling center directors and student affairs folks feel they may get out of this as it relates to solving one of their biggest issues, which is capacity. Yeah, it's not a surprise that counseling centers have always been supporters of the concept of peer-to-peer work and have typically been involved in since, let's say, 1960s, 70s, 80s in peer support hotlines, different kinds of efforts that have grown up over time, sometimes running peer counseling programs and certainly being involved in training. I think what we need to be really careful about is when we talk about the crisis or the concept of a treatment gap, we have to really be very specific about which kind of peer support we're talking about and which gap it is we're trying to span because they're definitely not all the same. Yeah. And that's what we pointed out in our paper for sure, Ben. But the two big nuts, I think, for a lot of folks we talk to are capacity, right? They're they're concerned that they're not addressing the demands that students are showing up for. And secondly, as you mentioned, the treatment gap, which is ironically, as the demand increases, there's still a large percentage of students for whom, you know, they are not reaching to help with services. My question for you, Ben, is if you can, and I get that that these are not all the same, but if you could sort of think writ large about safe and effective peer programs, do you think that they could have an impact on these two issues? One being capacity and serving well the students that show up and the other being addressing the treatment gap. Yeah. So the answer is not simple. <laughs> let me let me unpack a couple, let me unpack a couple of the concepts you mentioned there. So when we talk about a treatment gap, we, it's important to be specific to so that people have a sense of this, the scale and scope. So let's imagine an institution of 10,000 students, right? A year or so ago, Healthy Minds study found that 50% of students screen positive for a mental health concern. So you, you can debate the merits of, of that and whether or not that's accurate, but let's run with that. Let's say it's true. So 5,000 students at that school need treatment. And if you look at the CD survey, the Association of the University and College Counseling Center Directors, the average counseling center treats about 10% of the student body. Right. So you put those two numbers together, 50% need 5,000, 10% in treatment on average, 1,000. So the gap is 4,000 students. And what the screening positive phrase means is that they screen positive for a mental health problem that needs treatment. So then if we narrow in on that to your question, can peer support make up a gap of treating 4,000 students? And the answer is no, but there are different components to that answer. Peer support in its most pure form is not mental health treatments or even mental health focused. In fact, one of the most longstanding, productive, and impactful forms of peer support are student clubs and organizations. So at Penn State University, there's a thousand student clubs and organizations impacting tens of thousands of students. And working in a counseling center, treating students, one of the first things we would often do during the fall is refer students to the involvement fair and say, go join two or three clubs, try them out. So those experiences, those peer experiences produce 
relationships that grow over time through shared common experience and those relationships then you can depend on later in moments of need. That's where, you know, I think a true peer-to-peer interaction occurs that changes people's lives. So that's a really big system that already exists that we often don't talk about. If you look at a traditional peer counseling program, they have very limited scope. So you may have 10, 20, 30, 40 students who are training in peer counseling. They're only going to collectively impact maybe hundreds of students at a, in a very large program. They're certainly not going to impact 4,000 students. If you look at peer educators, they can make a huge dent in terms of reach and education and information. They can reach thousands and thousands of students, but they're not going to treat those thousands of students. And then if you look at topic-specific peer support mechanisms, which could include an AA group, that could include support groups around elements of identity, such as sexual orientation or race and ethnicity, or support groups that are ongoing coping skills group post-treatment or those kinds of things. People living with more severe mental illness who are connected with people with lived experience or experts by experience. Those topic-specific peer groups can make a huge difference for small groups of people with specific concerns, but they also aren't going to reach 4,000 students. So when I think about how do we make up the treatment gap, the, the first question is, do we believe those students need treatment? And it's important to recognize here that counseling centers range greatly in terms of their ability to reach students. At a small private liberal arts institution that's well endowed, the counseling center may reach more than 60% of the students per year. But in a very, let's say, a primarily commuter a community college, they may serve less than 1% of the student body per year. And they could have 10 or 20,000 students enrolled. So what exactly is the gap and who exactly are we trying to reach? So I think all of these different versions of peer support, including the hotlines, including the different versions that are out there, can make a difference on a given campus, but they're not necessarily going to make up the treatment gap. But I think one of the problems we have currently around what we're calling a treatment gap is this narrative that exists around college student mental health, which has evolved over the last 20 or 30 years, which I boil down to, if you're in distress, you need professional help. And as long as that narrative exists, and we're trying to route every person with distress through a very limited treatment system, we will have this, this gap. On the other hand, if we begin to see that we've kind of inadvertently pathologized normative human experiences, and we, we were to step back from that and route people in other systems, then, you know, then I think we, we could begin to make a difference. And this is part of the reason why, you know, I landed with Together All is that the idea is that you can scale this support service to the entire population 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and know that there's a clinical safety net in the background there. So I think these kinds of novel solutions combined with all of the different versions of peer support can collectively help to make a really important difference but it will depend on the strategy for each institution, how they implement it. Thank you so much for all of that. I'm just sitting here, my head is sort of spinning with all of the deep perspective that you have provided. And if I can surmise, peer-to-peer work, again, not new, 
Although, as our paper points out, it could be better served by some more evidence-based practices and guidelines that I think would be helpful. But that aside, Ben, it sounds like you're saying that there are very compelling reasons to pursue these services, not necessarily that they could help with the capacity issue, which, as you point out, is very complicated. But all of that was fantastic knowledge. Thank you so much. Ben Locke, Clinical Director of Together All, thank you for being with us. And we will circle back with you, hopefully often. All right, Marsh. Good to be with you. Thank you. So now we're going to bring in Dr. Zoe Ragusius. Zoe oversees mental health services at NYU and is our colleague and advisor as the clinical director of the Mary Christie Institute. Good morning, Zoe. Hi there. How are you today? I'm doing well. How's it going? Going very well. So we've just heard from Dr. Ben Locke, who is now the clinical director at Together All. Ben's been in college student mental health for a long time, as you can tell from the interview, Zoe. So he had a lot of interesting things to say about the role of peer to peer services in this whole puzzle around just trying to solve the campus mental health crisis. And he particularly talks about the treatment gap. So Zoe, addressing the treatment gap is your day-to-day issue. And did what Ben say about the complicated way these programs might help with that, did that resonate with you? Yeah, I mean, I think that the nuance that Ben described actually wasn't complicated at all. It was, in fact, quite clear about how peer support can assist with students who are struggling. I think he makes clear that clinical treatment and support for students, whether from peers or from faculty or student affairs professionals, are different things. And I thought that Ben gave a responsible view of where peer support fits in. Some students will need clinical care. But many more will require support. In in fact, all students will need support at one time or another. And for many reasons, their peers have the potential to be a tremendous source of support for them. And this is the puzzle piece that peer support can fill. It's making students feel cared for and supported and understood and ultimately that they belong at the institution. So that sort of leads to the next question. I thought it was pretty interesting that he spoke of this narrative that exists in college student mental health around the medical model or the the clinical model where the response to what students are reporting in terms of anxiety and depression have all been within the clinical setting with this sense that, you know, if you are in distress, you need therapy. So what do you think about that narrative, Zoe? Is it something you've experienced in your role at NYU? And do you see that changing at all? I mean, I think what he highlights is that there's a big range between students who need clinical care and students who need to feel supported. And I think those who need clinical care have to get it. And there is no group of people who can serve those students except for those who are clinically trained with licenses to practice. But from the public health perspective, There are many students who won't choose professional care or others who actually don't necessarily need clinical care, but just feel in distress. And if we get to those students using other support on campus, including peers, we might mitigate a small problem from getting worse, or we might have an opportunity to encourage that student to seek professional care if necessary. And so to the question about whether that's been the mantra at in, in higher education, it certainly has been that students need to feel supported. I think what's changing is this concept of who should be supporting students. Certainly clinicians have a role. They have an important role. They have possibly the core role, but there's so many other students who won't choose counseling at all or who actually don't need it, who can benefit from other people 
who are around them who can support them. So, Zoe, it's interesting that a lot of what you're describing as part of the solution doesn't really rest within the counseling center at all, correct? And that's an interesting position for folks like you to be in and certainly a little bit broader for people who are in student affairs. But when you're talking about the different ways that people can get help for different types of issues, you're talking about peer support. You could be talking about faculty interventions. You could be talking about a lot of different type of support sources on campus, correct? Yes. I think that, you know, the the charge at this moment in time in higher education is to teach more people who surround students how to support them and to infuse the message that it is the responsibility of most everyone on a college campus to assist in students feeling cared for, not just the the college counseling services. Right. And back to the peer-to-peer support work, as we've outlined in our paper, some of it is really quite direct and intentional. Talk a little bit about the place that holds in this continuum, Zoe, and do you think there can be a little bit more reliance on the actual help in the moment, or do you think that there are students who could be helped by certain types of peer support programs and may never come to your office? Yeah, so I mean, there's going to be people who need clinical care, who are even getting clinical care, who need to augment that with support. Right. And so peers would be a great place, assuming again that they are, they are following protocols and that they're trained. They can certainly assist to support that group of students. There are other students who need clinical care who will not access clinical care, either because the stakes are too high or because the stigma is too high or they don't think that the counselors would understand them. Various reasons. And those students still need support. And by using peers or faculty or student affairs administrators, it could be an avenue into the counseling services just because they will be referred by somebody that they trust. And then there's a group of students who actually don't need clinical care. They're just upset about something. They're either upset about something or they don't feel like they belong or they don't feel as cared for as they should. And those students can be, should be supported by lots of members of a campus community and not necessarily just the counselors. Right. So you talk about students that need help but are not seeking it. And I know that data show that a lot of these students tend to be those with minoritized identities. How do you see these programs benefiting that student population group for whom affinity is a really important factor? Yeah, all students want to feel supported and need to feel supported. So some students, for example, those you highlight with minoritized identities, are are going to want to feel supported by those who share their identities. And as we've been saying, you know, approaching a peer has lower stakes, there's decreased stigma. And so there's a lot of reasons that a student might choose a peer. They might just want a peer to listen and support them without a desire for professional support at all. And again, with proper training, the peers can provide support that can allow these students to be heard and to feel cared for. And again, to be referred to counseling, possibly at a later time, if that's appropriate. But ultimately, for minoritized students, this is the key task is to make them feel better in the moment, mitigate a small problem from getting worse, have them feel cared for and like they belong at the institution. Thanks, Zoe. 
So this concludes our two-episode series on peer-to-peer support. Thank you so much, Zoe. Your comments on what the experts have told us have been really important to this discussion. And once again, I thank you for being on the podcast, and I'm sure you'll be on again soon. Thank you. This has been The Quadcast, a program of the Mary Christie Institute. To learn more about our work, go to marychristieinstitute.org, where you can sign up for our other programs like the MC Feed and the Mary Christie Quarterly. And if you like what we're doing, leave us a rating or review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks so much for listening. 